0: So, I will uh, introduce people in the order that I think they've agreed to uh, make their remarks. Yes, Marta, you're going?
1: I've agreed to be first, Okay.
0: So, Marta Teglerowicz is an assistant professor in English and in comparative literature here at Yale. Uh, She's enormously prolific. She has two books out and several more in progress, so I think I might have lost count of how many actually (laughs) exist in the world. Uh, But, uh, Flat protagonists: A Theory of Novel Character, was published by Oxford in 2016, and Spaces of Feeling, Affects, and Awareness in Modernist Literature uh, is out from Cornell. She's also edited special issues on affect theory and on object emotions, and recently she's begun teaching a wide-ranging and innovative course on digital culture. So I hope that that will be part of her role here today. John Durham Peters is the Maria Rosa Minocal Professor of English and of Film and Media Studies here at Yale, having formerly taught for many years at the University of Iowa in Communication Studies. From his long CV, I would like to mention primarily uh, Speaking Into the Air, A History of the Idea of Communication, published in 1999. I recommend this book to everybody I, I can get a hold of. Uh, it's remarkable and indispensable for anyone interested in media and culture. Uh, and more recently, The Marvelous Clouds Toward a Philosophy of Elemental Media. A remarkable and indispensable book for anyone interested <laughs> in media, culture, <laughs> the planet, our bodies, and just about everything else. Bill Brown is the Carlos Scherer Distinguished Service Professor in American Culture, Deputy Provost for the Arts at the University of Chicago where he has taught since 1989. He's also a co-editor of Critical Inquiry, and his special issue of Critical Inquiry in 2001 on the topic of things is, of course, what lies behind tonight's panel. Brown has had a lot to say about things and thing gummies and doohickeys and all of the other constellated object, uh, concepts that lie around our fascination with things. Uh, In addition to the 2001 special issue, there has been A Sense of Things, The Object Matter of American Literature from Chicago in 2003, and Other Things from Chicago in 2015. These books are wide-ranging in the attitudes toward things they describe, a kind of longing for things as if they were the real, a frustration with things which only obtrude on our consciousness when they have broken down a way of thinking through things as uh, condensations, as well as a dread that, as Emerson put it, things are in the saddle and ride mankind, which is a great example of someone using a thing, in this case a saddle, in order to think about everything except that thing. (laughs) Um, So, uh, Marta, I think you're uh, the first to respond to our prompts.
1: Yes, I think I'm... Can everybody hear me in the back? Wonderful. Um, So, as Michael had suggested, I'm going to Devote my five or ten minutes to discussing an example from my recent project, which is on digital media and their impact on our experience of the world. Um, and I'm going to pick an example of kind of how books, the most traditional books that are up here, and their persistence as things that are still printed and used as forms of expression, can actually teach us something about how digital media with which they now coexist have been reshaping our experience of ourselves and our lives. Um, And the example I'm going to use to celebrate it, having come out just a couple of days ago, is Knausgaard's My Struggle, which finally, the sixth volume, just appeared in English translation, which is great for me because I no longer have to rely on our Swedish department chair to tell me how it ended. (laughs) Um, So I think of Knausgaard's book as a very interesting aesthetic experiment in part because within the medium and the genre of the printed novel it tries to grapple with questions that I think are very deeply contemporary and extend beyond his medium and those are questions of of how do you exist and how do you write about yourself or perform an aesthetic act um, in the age of the wide accessibility of all kinds of personal information so I'm not revealing too much I think if I say that In this last volume, one of the big plot points is, somewhat narcissistically, the publication of the first volume of Knausgaard's series, which causes Knausgaard's family to get extremely upset. In particular, one family member feels that he and his brother have been very disrespected. Um, And in response to this threat of a family feud and lawsuit, Knausgaard goes to the medical records of the hospital where his father died. The thing is about how his father actually did die. And he finds records that show that he did indeed die exactly on the date and exactly in the way that my struggle describes. Um, And you could have known that must be the the case in real life because he did win the lawsuit that allowed the book to go forward. And to me, that is a really interesting case and a very rare case in guard where he actually seems both as an author and as a narrator to be happy about the personal information existing in the world, because most of the rest of the novel is in fact spent kind of in deep, constant anxiety about kind of how to produce what Bart called the effect of the real in a world where anything at all, any detail at all, could be Googled, and in a world where it no longer seems like intimate, Details and moments of our lives are actually that difficult to store or look up, both about ourselves and about other people. Um, so in Bart's essay on the effect of the real, the effet du um, réel, Bart says that a novel makes, them, makes its environments seem more real to us by introducing into it objects that we don't expect to be there, by which we are surprised, and that we don't have enough of the context to expect their presence. Um, And the psychological equivalent of that in the psychological novel is the weird personal intimate detail that people don't normally talk about, like in Ulysses, famously one of those details is Leopold Bloom's depiction of his defecation, which is not a topic of conversation. You're surprised to see it in a work of realism. And Knelsgar's novel, by contrast, is obsessed not only with those details, but also with the impossibility of metonymy as a device, of, you can no longer use one object to designate a series of objects, instead, when you want to say what bands you listen to as a child, you have to list all of them, because presumably somebody could figure out what they were from another source. And when you try to talk about what's in your fridge, similarly, you talk about everything Um, And the urge of the novel is to kind of get to the bottom of a detail that couldn't be searchable, but then all of those details actually seem to be searchable and repeatable somewhere else. Um, And in that sense, in my essays, I talk about Knalsgaard's novel more as an example of a novel of data management than a novel of memory. Because unlike Proust, to whom he's been compared, Knausgaard has remarkably little anxiety about, will I remember this little detail? Instead, the anxiety is how many more people remember this detail and how will it come back to me? Um, and in that regard, the fact that it's called My Struggle and references Hitler's Mein Kampf is a, is a big um, kind of point of interest to the novel, in part because that is one of the very few cultural sources he expects people might not have read. Um, and one of the few things that might not actually be searchable on the internet in many of the countries where the book is being read. For example, in Germany, the title, My Struggle, could not even be used in popularizing the book. Um, so I, I use this example to say, that a lot of people, when they think about digital media, they think of the internet as the place where we need to go to study them, and they also think of the novel as a kind of anachronistic genre that people might still write in, but that kind of responds to a different kind of reality and maybe indeed preserves it. Um, and part of what I try to argue, in part relying on thing theory, is to think about how our relationship even to physical objects such as novels changes fundamentally depending on what kind of information they repeat, how precious they are within a larger circumference of data, um, and also in what aspects of them end up being surprising to us or seeming like the thing that the novel is now made for. Um, so with that, I'll pause, and I'd be happy to go back to that example in the Q&A. So I see
2: people standing. I see empty seats. Could people next to an empty seat raise their hand. Can be be a nice little thing so everybody can sit down? Thank you. There,
0: there's a chair up here that probably just has my swag sitting on it. If someone could just move it under the chair, that would be yeah, one more seat.
2: Good. Thank you. Um, I love the cavernous sound in this space. Um, I'm a bibliophilic media theorist and historian, not a historian of the book. So I'm not qualified to talk about development in the field. Instead, I will offer a few propositions, or rather stray aphorisms, on the metaphysics of book things and hopefully in passing answer some of our assigned questions. So there'll be lots of dandelion seeds floating about for possible further discussion. Books invite us to discover a depth in objects that is impossible with subjects. It takes a few minutes to get acquainted with a person, but a book requires hours. What if we treated books the same way we treated each other, and each other the same way we treated books? You know a person after a few hundred words. Why doesn't this suffice for books? It's inspired from conversations with Marta, actually. Two. Whatever techniques of discipline, hurting, branding, and freezing that had been used on people were first used on animals and books. Three, history of the book. Beware of all terms that are prefaced by a definite article. (laughs) As if to counter the platonizing yank of the the, most book historians take relish in the quirkiness of the particular. Not the book in general, but this book, that book. Not the disembodied text, but the binding, that cover image, this font, this trace of a teardrop. That's what we all want to find. That dog earring perhaps marking a word in the text. Four, Gare Cantor, the mathematician, defined a set as a multitude considered as, as a one. A multitude considered as a one. Five. The moving thing about Walter Benjamin's unpacked library is that he takes shelter in the idiosyncrasies and singularity of the individual copies of his book collection. It's the glitches, not the text, that are the shelter against loss, the bulwark against forgetting, the memory theater of the living. Benjamin sought security in the breakdown. I'm losing track of my numbers. I think this is six. The gap between the intelligibility of a marginal note that is written and one that is read is the gap between the living and the dead. For me, the note is a marker of a thought, as long as my memory holds up. For any other reader, it is a mark that once a thought occurred without saying exactly what that thought was. Seven, the interpretive gradient between a scrawl and a memory is not only a marker of the gap between the living and the dead, but between the self and the other. Ocho, no object poses the question of subject and object so acutely as a book. Nueve, nine, no object poses the question of the relation between body and mind as acutely as a book. Ten. Consciousness, the hard problem. Would books exist without consciousness, or are books themselves conscious? 11. The apocalyptic scenario of a library without readers, think of Burgess Meredith with the broken glasses in in the Twilight Zone, or many other examples since, is not some horror that is to come in the future. It is the current condition of almost every library and of almost every item in the library. 12. Books, like all organisms, depend on the, the sustaining power of invisible ecosystems. Books cannot live in an aquatic environment. They cannot live in extreme heat. They cannot live on the sun, for example. They cannot live in extreme humidity. They cannot live in extreme cold. Preservationists know these facts better than anyone. Books are environmental beings par excellence. They testify of the reserves that they stand in. Okay. Must be 13. The post human was always there in the book. 14. The humanities were always about non human things, carriers of human creativity. Hannah Arendt calls it work things which last outside of any individual mortal body, things that are external to the brain or to the individual. So material inhumanities, or maybe non-humanities at least, are always the basis of the humanities. Fifteen, a book is both bios and techne. Sixteen, John Milton said that to censor a book was to, quote, kill the image of God as it were in the eye, close quote. Books preserve, this is also Milton, books preserve as in a vial the purest efficacy and extraction of that living intellect that bred them. So nothing is quite so ghoulish as a book, as vials piled up on the shelves like jars with once living intellects housed inside. What a a peculiar sacrilege to harm a book. I really have lost track of my numbers. 17? Well, we have two. <laughs> yeah, all, right. <laughs> all right. It's just, it's a nice way to mark the interval, but yeah, text, yeah, number word. The geniza was invented to store Castoff's Torah scrolls because they cannot be destroyed. But in 1999, a rabbinical ruling allows the digital deletion of a Torah. The end of the Gospel of John posits a geniza of books that would fill the whole world. Thus, every Jorge Luis Borges creates his own precursors. I have always thought, said Borges, that paradise would be a kind of library. But every library can also be a nightmare. Ask anyone starting a dissertation. (laughs) A book is skepticism's antidote, a proof that other minds exist. A book holds mind in a shape that we cannot recognize as a conspecific, as a fellow member of our species. You can hold a book. You can kiss it. You can take it to bed. But it does not share the same bodily form as you do. The Latin word for thing is race, R-E-S. In the accusative singular, it is rem, r-e-m, the ancestor of the modern word, of the modern French word, lien which means nothing. The ancestor of the modern French word for thing shows is causa, meaning affair. These matters have been gone over in detail by our, our distinguished guest, um, among others. But a book is the kind of thing that bears well such os- oscillation between being and nothingness, between thingness and consciousness. A book is a material thing with a history. It is also an ineffable something or no thing that enables consciousness or the vanishing of consciousness. Finally, Marshall McLuhan, famous for having announced and also performed the demise of the book in the Gutenberg Galaxy from 1962, it's a very hard book to read, um, was an incessant reader of James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. UNESCO recently designated his library as an archive of the world's memory. And last Friday was a celebration of this fact in Toronto. I I was present there. Uh, McLuhan claimed that media theory was applied Joyce. His first copy of Five, which he owned, is heavily annotated, and I was able to look at this uh, last Thursday. It begins with a quote rather Harold Innes-like on rivers in, in uh, McLuhan's pencily scrawl, spidery pencily scrawl in the dust, dust jacket, in which he says that rivers are the infrastructures of civilization and also of Canadian history. Then he begins at once with a punning con- uh, commentary on the opening word of, of the wake, River Run. McLuhan notes that it's a brook, or it's a Bach, as in Johann Sebastian Bach, and it, but it actually runs backwards, or Bachwards, and it, <laughs> it is therefore <laughs> recursive. I mean, this is way before Douglas ha- Hofstadter, uh, Gudel et um, es- Escher Bach. Then a couple lines down, you art um, McLuhan writes in the margin. Tu es Petrus, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And McLuhan loved to say that the Catholic Church was built upon a pun, the punctum of, of Peter, of, 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 of the Iraq. And McLuhan is um, a Catholic convert, of course. So reading McLuhan, reading Joyce, is a small reminder of the ways that books remain treasures metaphysical defenses against memory loss, but are also minutely particular, weird, and each one their own species of being. Thanks. So I have three points. I think my
3: point three was John's point four. So uh, I I think, but I'm not sure. Um, Well, no, I mean, I am sure that it was number four. I just don't know whether it's a genuine um, intersection. So I'm I'm not a historian of uh, print culture, um, nor am I a media theorist. But for me, it was really interesting to like fantasize what it might be to be one of those things. Um, uh, uh, and then I'm also coming from Chicago, and so I dashed out this morning. Had to get through into the car like at six o'clock. And you, know what it's like before you are doing that? You think hmm, better grab a couple of books for the plane just so I make sure my mind is working, my brain is still going. And so first thought, of course, was like my colleague Adrian Johns, the nature of the book, a sort of magisterial yeah. account of um, the effectiveness of um, print to, to eventually like command uh, knowledge, uh, too big, too heavy. Um, then I thought of you know, Lupton's um, uh, reading and making and the making of time because I haven't quite had the time to finish it and I think it's fabulous. Um, didn't uh, take that one either, and I ended up taking um, Foucault's Manet and the Object of Painting, those early lectures, 67 to maybe 70 or something like that, which was his effort to think about how it is that an artist materializes um, canvas, and then uh, Derrida's Paper Machine, or what we um, have of it in the English translation that I have, um, and especially the essay Paper or Me, where he's insisting that um, his topic all along has been paper. Um, and um, then meditates on the fact that this will have been a very short history, that is, a history of paper. Um, therefore, I am n- not, not um, in any sort of hidden way, I think, um, bemoaning the loss of the infrastructural support, material support of his topology, right? So I grabbed those, um, uh, that was good, then jumped on the plane and, tr- and started to think, um, or try to think, um, not really uh, with them. They brand me as very seriously 20th century. Um, they also, though, I think um, helped me to recognize where I took the prompts to be doing, which is to try to figure out um, how we might be conceptualizing what we do when we focus on the book in its object form, right? Um, when we're looking... Um, at it not through it as it were, or yes through it, but also very seriously um, at it. So it strikes me that that is point one, um, that that act is an act of materialization, is often called that materializing the book, um, that is an act of demediation that is diminishing its status as a mere medium, if you will, while augmenting its status as a physical object. And um, highly demediated books um, become, among other things, art. Garrett Stewart has a great um, book mm. called Bookwork on um, uh, the mostly contemporary book artists that we have. Kind of drives me nuts, that stuff. I mean, I very much like Garrett's book. Um, and I like some of this work, but I always get a little um, you know, bit of a chill when I see somebody who's chopped up a bunch of books to, to <laughs> um, make something else, if you're a, a book person. Um, there are very good, Buzz Spector is a St. Louis um, book artist who also is a writer um, and is a book artist who makes books, but also as a book artist who destroys them. Um, but those are sort of extreme cases. But it also struck me that in in some instances, the history of the um, highly polished book, I'm uh, thinking in particular of the Kelmscott Scott Chaucer, um, and and uh, you have page proofs for that uh, here, really isn't a medium for the text, right? It's as though the text has become a medium for the book. That is, um, that Chaucer becomes an excuse to produce this, um, for William Morris to produce this um, fabulous um, object. Um, every page is a fabulous object with this um, uh, Burne Jones um, illustrations as well. And I have to say, too, that if I want to read um, you know, The Wife of Bath's Tale, that is not the edition <laughs> I'm going to, right? It's, it's genuinely very difficult to read. Um, it's as though unconsciously the opacity of it made it clear um, that this is um, part of what happens um, when we're attending to something as an object, um, that it, that it, uh, that it uh, diminishes itself as a medium. That was point one. But then it also strikes me that if we're doing a certain kind of um, book history, or the little bit uh, that I do every now and again. Um, what we're doing is um, asking a book to be a, a different kind of medium. We're remediating, um, not in a typical sense, um, a medium through which we uh, seek other experiences, um, other <coughs> histories about book production uh, or about um, you know, the, the culture of reading, about aesthetics, something like that. In that sense, it does, <coughs> is serving as a medium. When this is happening, um, it strikes me that, there, that one thing can. Often inhabits a kind of phenomenological approach subject object also aesthetic um, or uh, like an ecological approach where you're really thinking um, about production circulation reception um, about the sort of um, uh, public spheres that that Michael talks about um, and I think uh, there, there can be extremes, that my favorite extreme right now is a book that's not out yet. I don't know when it will be out. It's uh, another colleague of mine, Eric Slaughter's um, book, w- which will be called um, Walden's Carbon Footprint. Mm. Um, and it's a magnificent idea, and he's been working on it for a very long time. He's an obsessive, compulsive historian the way I am not. Um, the idea was simply to figure out um, what was the carbon footprint of the production of Walden. Right. He actually got that figured out pretty quickly, but then found out more about the paper, the production of the paper, found out more about who was working in, at the press. Turns out that one of the women who was working at the press was an African-American woman who had a sort of managerial role, completely bizarre, um, in antebellum America. So anyway, it has become this very big ecology, um, but starting from that moment of just trying to figure out what the composition of this is, and what um, energy went in to produce it. Um, so that's just point two, uh, remediation from demediation. Uh, point three really has to do with um, uh, the object never being, I take this you the intersection with your point four, um, the object never being um, one thing. Um, even, uh, I suppose, phenomenologically, we can trick ourselves into thinking that it's one thing, but I think it's not one thing. So I've been working, uh, my new project is on assemblage, it's on assemblage within the social sciences assemblage theories, people like Colin McFarlane, the urban geographer, um, Emmanuel Delanda, the social theorist, but my question is whether assemblage as an art practice can leaven, can um, complicate uh, assemblage theories within the social sciences. Obviously, I think it does, or I wouldn't be doing the project. My example from literature is um, Burroughs doing the cut-up, fold-in uh, work that he did to produce his so-called cut-up uh, trilogy. Um, and what I want to say about um, Burroughs's novels, in particular the ticket that exploded now, is what Shlovsky said of Stern's and Shandy, which is that it's the most typical novel in the world. Um, typical insofar as, from my point of view, um, Burroughs is cut up and folded novels where he is literally cutting up pages, putting them back together, cutting up pages, putting them back together. and then um, then typing again and and typing again until he ends up with something that he's going to call a novel. Um, What strikes me that that dramatizes is the um, assemblage mode of existence of all novels. Um, And the point here being that whereas Bakhtin, um, I think very convincingly, describes the novel as heteroglossic, is made up of many voices, and whereas somebody like Paul Hunter, when it comes to the English novel, has talked about it as a genre Um, but it's a composite of other genre, is that it's also important to think of the book as, of course, a composite of many materials. Um, So paper, yes, but then also the materials that went into the paper, and then the paper gathered into signatures and and stitched, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that that final point is just to try to, even if one is looking at it as a discrete, a a book as a discrete object um, phenomenologically rather than ecologically, Um, to recognize that a book, at that moment, is not one thing, uh, but many things.
0: Okay, that's great. Thank you for those. Um, I believe we want to take questions from the audience a second, but I I can't help just noting that that cut-up technique Burroughs got from Brian Geison. Oh, yeah. Who's in Paris,
3: 1959,
0: yes. Hotel. Who's, who's famous for one other composite, which is the hash fudge recipe in the Alice B. Toklas cookbook. She, yes. she got it from him, too. So apparently, he just gives composites right. to other people. <laughs>
3: right. Well, okay. and of course, part of the complication for the, my argument about the novel is that Burroughs is also doing this with audio taping, he's doing it with film. Yeah. It's not yeah. just doing it with words on paper.
0: Right, right. Those questions, yes. Yeah.
4: I have a bit of a, maybe, uh, a little bit question, like, but uh, you mentioned that um, unexpected and uh, surprising these things this object, not this object, and um, I'm just thinking, but um, it's kind of a question that makes to all of you, and what do you think about the impossible object in, uh, in which, and I'm thinking, um, and, uh, and, um, the mentioned of right the object, the one point where everything happens in some cases, but also joined by a doctor, a would that and why that's why you like
0: that's a great story by the way. Yeah. Everyone should read that
3: story. um yeah I certainly think that, that is the case, although um, I wouldn't at this moment in history want to privilege, say, the novel over film as far as giving us, as far as disclosing the impossible. Um, but what I think is really important there is the degree to which we move from the real, let's say the book in our hand, um, to the surreal you know, instantly, right? And so, certainly for me, when it comes to thing theory or thinking that there's a difference between. An object, and a thing—that um, if you just happen to be you know, like studying literature, that becomes very clear very quickly, right? That that um, a, a book, um, if there's anything inside the book, um, is always in excess of its object form, right? In excess, precisely the way you're talking about it. That you you open it. if you're starting to read, you can be um, elsewhere in time and place and, and imagine the impossible.
1: Yeah, kind of building on that, your examples also made me think of another book on Mashada de Assises at the Tafa the Small Winner, um, which is a book written as a posthumous memoir. Mm-hmm. So a memoir written from behind the grave. Um and it's a really funny book to read in part because as you get lost in the narrative, kind sort of not only do you forget that the author is dead, you also realize how weird it is that most books you read are actually voices of dead people. Um, and part of the book is also an extended joke on this problem of consciousness that John was also raising, the fact that it's, in fact, no less absurd to have a dead author. What was the book again? Um, Epitaph of a Small Winter, uh, Mashallah de Assis. Um,
2: okay. is, is your implication that, that language outside of literature is sort of compelled to be sensible and that literature is the shelter that allows its unintelligibility to flourish?
5: ha ha
0: No, I. Oh, okay, yes, in the back.
6: That the books
2: have that, I think that that's Bill's point, that books are always many things, that, that books are the identity of non identity and identity that speak Hegel. Um, for a for minute. I, mean, I mean, a book is never just one thing. That's what I meant.
0: I have a question that I wanted to pose to the three of you. Um, <clears throat> I went back to the original CI essay mm-hmm. um, in preparation for this, and I was struck that even in 2001, you had the notion at the end of the essay that maybe one of the reasons that there is a kind of new interest in the materiality of texts. Is that everything's being digitized and we have this idea that a digital book is not a thing Mm
5: -hmm.
0: Um, and of course that has exploded since you wrote that essay I wondered if you have any thoughts about revisiting that connection of course we can all talk about ways that uh, digital texts are of course material it's not as though they exist outside the world or anything they require vast structures of materiality to support them so the uh, the kind of rallying cry of material text, you know, the name of the mm-hmm. of the series that Peter Staley Brass and Margreta de Grazia run at Penn, which is from the inspiration of history of book programs like this, doesn't really get traction on the question of whether digital books are or are not material, but it does help explain why we're so interested in that question. And, uh, you know, Marta's been teaching a lot on this Topic as well, so I thought I might invite all three of you to, yeah, Marta, to talk you a little start? bit about this. Yeah. Is that me? Or that? Oh, smartphone! Exciting.
1: Are we good? That was that was exciting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I do think it also reminds me Thank when you. Bill was talking. Um, it's also a well-known phenomenon in the shift from manuscript to print. That that ship produced in the 16th century a series of exceptionally illuminated, beautiful manuscripts, which Mm -hmm. was kind of the last... It's as if people discovered that illuminations were so awesome, you could actually just have a book of illuminations no longer subordinated to um, the writing that was next to them, which is kind of like the Chaucer book um, Mm -hmm. you were describing. Um, And that is also... I think I tend to be skeptical of arguments, as you were suggesting, that divide up the material in the book and the digital strictly. Um, but I do think, to me, it's a question of accessibility and of, kind of the, phenomen- the experience of access, um, kind of even the fact that, like, let alone having electronic books, if I still prefer to have a material book, I can now press a button and it's delivered to me here at Yale, which is another marvel of the internet. Um, To me, the question is less in terms of the screen versus the page as it is about what the shape and the scope and the network surrounding the book is in relation to them, Um, which to me also resembles the shift from manuscript to print much more because that shift was much more about accessibility and comparison than it was about um, the process of reading in and of itself.
2: Okay, to speak Hegel again, Minerva's owl takes flight in the gathering dusk. Yes. Right? It's always as a form is in its twilight that it's able to kind of flourish yeah. and, and, and blossom in interesting ways. On the other hand, I, mean, I, I mean, the, the prophecy that digits are going to destroy books is totally absurd because, mm-hmm. for example, Google is completely based on a bibliometric model. Yeah. And, and, you know, the early early designs for Google were based upon library structures. The page rank, which is kind of like the Coca-Cola recipe of early uh, Google searches is completely based upon how the sort of intertextual structures that books have up to each other. So the old, whether it's it's the Torah or it's, um, you know, the Galileo model that the book is the universe is it's clearly um alive and well and flourishing in all kinds of ways and so it's kind of absurd to think that
4: yeah so when you yeah, say yeah.
2: book you or you don't mean book between covers you mean book as, book as, as the word repository of everything uh-huh. yeah turn it and turn it again for everything right. is in it right, right. I mean, you could say that of google we can say that of the uh, right Toronto. right yeah.
3: right um because i'm not you know because i'm i'm uh Actually, think that we, you know, we are that books—the sort of thing that most of us have in our backpacks—codices. Codices. Yeah. I think if the codices, you know, are disappearing and will continue to disappear, I don't think they'll disappear altogether. Um, I have a partner who reads on an iPad and it gives me enormous pleasure every time she's doing this in bed it hits her in the face because she's just gone to sleep. Because I, I cannot read that way. Um, and um, I mean, I think it's just fascinating right now that, that all the stats tell us that you know, more people are reading more than they ever have, right? But while that's happening, um, you know, God knows the university presses, but not just the university presses. Are crying because there aren't. I mean, they're they're doing fine in the digital sphere, um, but that's the sphere they're doing fine in. And uh, it's um, it's you know to me it's just very um, visceral and personal. I still actually do you know I like that. I mean I like the way that bindings are so clearly meant to have you hold them, right? Um, And and somebody like Buzz Specter, I had a. um, I organized a conference on binding uh, last year in the spring, um, and Buzz Spector, who does design books, that also chops them up, but does design them, said, oh, yes. And he just and he spent so much time talking about um, his ideas about the relationship between the binding and, and the hand, um, and the cupped hand, and things like that. So I think that's still where I am with books. So that's not really an answer to your question. But I do feel as though. Um, I was right in 2001, and I think that my that the assemblage project for me really begins by saying we live in a cut and paste era. We're actually all assemblage artists all the time. We cut and paste, you know, perpetually, perpetually, perpetually. We retweet, um, um, and that I actually think that assemblage art, contemporary assemblage art, but not just contemporary.
0: Although almost no one is actually cutting or pasting exactly. anything.
3: Yeah. that's right. Exactly, we're cutting and pasting. Cutting and yeah. pasting, right? Um, and it's also the case that whatever we're doing, the idea is to render it seamless. Or typically, the idea yeah. is to render it seamless. If you're taking your really great concluding sentence and deciding it has to be your opening sentence of your essay, um, you don't, you know, you, you you don't want somebody to see that. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, so, um, and I, I feel as though that's part of what um, the proliferation of assemblage art um, at our contemporary moment in the art world. Is, is really wrestling with it's like how can we how can we cut and paste it's actually we'll cut and paste and show the scene
5: mm-hmm.
0: yes
3: would you speak a little bit more loudly i'm still suffering from the
1: I wonder to some extent if what you're describing is not generational. Um, And I include myself in the generation that also loves books, but then I see my students. Um, And there is also an argument about democracy and democratizing here, which Mm -hmm. I've also been thinking a lot about in relation to another project. I'm involved in a group at Yale that has been testing Hewlett Packard's blended reality um, devices. And one of the things, another part of this group has been doing, was to scan famous art spaces like the Sistine Chapel and make them available to students through virtual reality goggles, so instead of having to spend thousands of dollars to go like, all the way to see it, you can just put it on and kind of walk around the room, bump into things, um, but experience is grandeur a little bit better than you might just on a two-dimensional reproduction. And that is something I actually feel very torn about, because on the one hand, I think there is so much about the senses and authenticity and about valuing that experience that I think is very precious. That to me also relates to the experience of getting to own a book. It's going to be easier for me to think with, but then I think very pragmatically, mm-hmm. um, if digital books mean more people are going to get to read more things and access them more easily, um, even the way that most of the global... South in the former Soviet world accesses academic books via torrent. Um, mm-hmm. they're accessed via PDFs mm-hmm. because those paper books that we prize are not I mean even our graduate students can buy them, like people. Can't buy them. Can buy people in kind of Siberia really can't even order them on Amazon. Um, so that to me is another interesting question of access and to what extent kind of those are media Compromises that will soon seem outdated for kind of broader political reasons. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm really
2: interested in your question about the senses. I, I think back to this essay by Walter Benjamin, who I, who I mentioned. It's a really lovely essay. Many of you will know it about. He's unpacking his library, and he's yeah. such a fetishist. You, know, you can see he's breathing. He's he's just it's just like this whole trip through memory lane to kind of think what um, what each book means. And, and Benjamin, as a Marxist, is should be nervous about fetishism, but it's clear that in this zone, there's a kind of legitimate fetishism, which which is fine, and which I think that book history as a rule sort of legitimates fetishism of certain kinds. Mm-hmm. And um, for me, the question is less the senses than it is the vestibular system, or it's, or it's the spine. Because the problem for me in reading is... How can I put my, pos- my back in a position that is not hurting? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a problem that a lot of us deal with. And I, I think the sort of physicality, I mean, your, your partner's mm-hmm. on iP- iPad hitting, hitting her on, on the nose is a kind of interesting because you it, it can fall asleep with a book. Right. Easily, I mean, it's happened to all of us here. It just sits there kind of nicely. It's, it's not only designed for the hand, but for the nose. Right. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Excellent point. Excellent point. Excellent point.
3: Um, yeah, I mean, I really, I mean, I, I uh, want to underscore what Marta said. I, you know, I was teaching in Moscow for a couple of weeks, a couple of summers ago, and I just couldn't believe the kind of access they had to the material. I wanted the them to changed. read. You know, yeah. really, really great. On the one hand, on the other hand, I was thinking, oh, but that's not what it really is, you know, that 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 the text outside of what is to me its familiar object form isn't quite the same thing, um, and so I just think that that's a reality we live with. But then I also think, of, like you know, Faulkner wanted *The Sound and the Fury* to be printed in in multicolor, and he wanted different sections to be in different colors, and was really trying to insist that that be the only way it gets printed, and. You know, finally somebody said, "Well, that's fine. We'll print five of them." You know, <laughs> um, so all of us have experienced that novel not the way it was supposed to be, um, but the way it is, which is still you know a, a rich experience. Um, but uh, but I'm yeah, but I um, I, yeah, I. But th- but in fact, though that
0: oddly enough, that would be very cheap to do in a digital edition.
3: Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly, uh, right, yeah. right. <laughs> Um, but I, I think at that moment, too, it's important to recognize that um, – and this is certainly also part of book history – that so many books appear in so many different editions, they're serialized, you move from triple-deckers to single things, and, and you, know, you have to imagine somebody saying to you, oh, well, if you didn't read that in a serial form, if you just read it in a codex, you haven't really experienced the book. Yeah. You don't know what it's like because you were not waiting. You know, there for a week or a month for the next section. So I think that's just—I um, just think that's part of the uh, relations that that we are going to have when it comes to
0: new mediation. There was a hand in the back row, and then Catherine.
2: i just say I wish Peter Stallybrass were here because that's something he's thought a lot about, the interaction of of printing and handwriting as on the Declaration of Independence being a classic um, example. I think it was 2006 in which the ratio of voice to text on on a telephony irrevocably shifted. And so I mean, people are, I mean, I don't know if you want to think of those as notebooks, but the sort of activity of writing has exploded in so many different forms. We're all commonplacing. In weird kind of ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Peter Stalebrassi Daly- Daly-
0: has an account of how much print is actually for the production of handwriting, printed forms. Mm-hmm. Catherine. I about this I where did you find your father You go to the
5: hospital. Yeah. as a when you were speaking of a fragment of the state documented or other kind of documented to it outside um, the production of the land how a that archival
3: relationship might change into the land. <laughs> um, well, I, I was spending some time at the New York Public Library in the Burroughs Archive there, which is great. And uh, is that what you mean? So what? What? How does? I'm not quite sure where your question is coming from,
5: Catherine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's no. placemats
2: for restaurants. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can just share share two anecdotes. One thing I I learned in Canada last week is that um, McLuhan's papers are in the Fisher Library at the University of Toronto, which is this fabulous building. It's like this building, but inside out, all all the books are um, around the side. So his his libraries at the Fisher Library. His papers are in Ottawa in the Canadian Archive. And I mean, how can you sort of distinguish between papers and library? But somehow this this is happening. The other anecdote is that. I had a very close colleague who died suddenly and left me all of his books. He had about 4,000 books. And it's taken me years and years, this is 2006, to try to finish a book that he was working on, um, which is going to come out next year from University of Chicago Press. It's co-authored, but he's the first author, even though he's, he's dead. So it was a very strange experience, but, but the thing about reading his books was that they're not just books. I mean, there are... Um, a record of him being treated for otitis. There's a mortgage payment. There's um, the stub of a check from the American Historians um, as, as Association. There's a note to his, to his mother. In in his collection of merleau Ponty, um, which he has no marks in whatsoever. There's one blank slip of paper, which I think is sort of like perfect. Mm-hmm. The book is called Signia in mean, Signs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it just I mean, but and. And I thought I figured out what all these what's, – what's the book history word, the add-ins or the fly whatever, the, the, the loose bits, bits of paper in there. I thought I had inventoried the whole thing, but they kept proliferating. It was like overnight, these little slips of paper are, are a breeding. So, I mean, it's almost as if to say that books don't just want to be books. They want to be papers flying mm-hmm. and you know, all these fringe objects. Sorry.
1: Yeah, that also reminds me of um, Andy Warhol's time capsules which is a kind of art project and hoarding documents of everyday life that he did um, in the 60s and 70s, where he would just create, he called them capsules, but they were more more like giant vats of stuff that ranged from remnants of his dinner to um, sheets of paper um, with little notes to receipts. Um, And then he had them locked for years, and now they're being slowly opened at the Andy Warhol Institute. and they often think about that when I think about contemporary kind of public archives even like social media to think like oh to him there was still an art project <laughs> to us that's yeah. just like a routine activity kind of it no longer registers as a voluntary act in indeed the voluntary act is to withhold things it also makes me think of um, I spent a lot of time at Houghton Library working there um, so I also with Occasionally come across those weird pieces of paper. I was like, this fell out of T.S. Eliot's notebook. Do I get to keep it? I don't think I do. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a piece of paper. (laughs) (laughs) I did not keep it. (laughs) 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 Um, And then when I myself went to the archives, I would go there primarily to look at people's hard drives. Like I looked at Susan Sontag's hard drive, which, among other things, contains all of her letters of recommendation to people who then wrote me letters of recommendation, which is a very strange thing to have read. Um, I was like, Oh my gosh, and now I know all of her opinions. But The difference between the kinds of things that would be stored in a paper archive versus a digital archive mm. was also very interesting to me, because you do have those weird finds, like a list of all of the kinds of marijuana that she liked mm-hmm. in between drafts of her will and drafts of against interpretation, um, just kind of stuck in a word file, but then you also have those documents that normally would be in a different archive, like the letter of recommendation, because it would have been sent on. And you wouldn't normally necessarily keep a copy. Um, so part of what was interesting to me here was also the question of classification that John mentioned. And suddenly, things that would have seemed like they belonged to a different person suddenly belonged to this entity and were classified within it.
3: What I always find when I encounter let's call it textual ephemera, right, long be less, is you know the sort the, of the arbitrariness of the preservation, right. Um, Which I also love, but I think you sort of like have to recognize it and then like sort of go with it. That's 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 what you have. I mean, that's what you're that's what you're making the cocktail with, right? Um, And I also find it scary. Like, um, I mean, it's not a textual example, but at the uh, Smithsonian and the uh, Great um, American uh, Art um, Archives, they you know they've reconstructed Cornell's Joseph Cornell's studio. It's like. And it, you sort of don't want to be there, right? I mean, it's, it's I, I would sort of would rather not um, be in the studio and just be experiencing the boxes um, in a way. Uh, what I was going to say before about just being in the Burroughs Archives, what I liked about that was that he had organized them himself, um, and, and the public library has reorganized them, um, but they have preserved his organization also. I mean, he was doing folios, they are doing boxes and folders, and what I really like about that, and that also becomes something like um, you know, a, 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 say, you know, a mere residue of organization. But what is so um, wonderful about them having um, left that residue is that it really gives you a sense of you know, where his mind was in relation to his own body
0: of work at one moment. You know. Katie. Yeah. Katie, can you speak up a little bit? Yeah.
2: NASCAR. Nice mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
5: That's
3: so you, Katie. <laughs> I well, yeah. I think I think people binge read all the time now, and I think um, um, in novels and certainly not novels. I mean, I think that one of the um, you know sort of one of the traumas of publishing a book now is that you know nobody's going to read it as a book, right? They're going to be reading it online. They're going to they're going to binge. They're going to read one part of one chapter because that's what they're interested in at that moment, right? And I and I do think I mean I I think it's probably different with novels. Is that binging or sampling. Um, I don't know. Is that binging or sampling? That's not really no. binging, no. Um, but it could be. Mm-hmm. It could be. Um, I mean, to me, I think that's actually it could be an affective difference between mm. binging and sampling. No. Um, but I, I imagine that people are doing that also. I don't know. I mean, it would be an interesting thing to test, to see whether people are reading, you know, the, the middle of a Virginia Woolf novel, but not the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Right. Right. No, I agree, and I think it's just like you know, experimental authors who don't believe in paragraph breaks drives me nuts. You know, I'd much rather have people like have no punctuation, but give me paragraph breaks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, But yeah, no, I I, I understand
2: what you're saying.
1: that's a fascinating point it was also people commented a lot about like what kind of teenager keeps a calendar book that you list all of your parties and appointments that in itself is a sign of deep mental trouble Um, Mm -hmm. um, but that is a good point and it that was the point I was trying to make about the novel where there used to be categories of experiences that we could only know from somebody reporting that to you like if I were to say like I really like the visual effect of food on a plate now you can kind of know about that about me very easily from instagram Um, indeed there's a kind of triviality to it but you can be like oh my gosh marta always takes one of two pictures it's either her cat or her hamburger or like the two together Uh, (laughs) um, and to me that is one of the fascinating things about it is that this calendar is an example of a paper medium and part of what's surprising is that as a paper object could resurface, but it wouldn't be surprising at all for, say, my calendar or my emails to resurface and document my life in unprecedented detail. In ways that we often feel paranoid about for political reasons, but that also just change your relationship to, your kind of romanticized relationship to those precious things about your everyday life. Because it's ever harder to have the Proustian moment of, oh, I suddenly remembered what I ate for dinner 20 years ago because you're going to know. And you know that you can know that.
2: I, I would just say that criminology has always had the biggest archive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, Carlo Ginsburg's written wonderfully um, about this, of uh, course. And I think it goes to Catherine's question also. Then, is the archive just papery stuff? It, it, I remember reading this, this thing about um, some Italian geneticists who, who dug up Pico. And, and they said this used to be a cadaver. Now it's an archive because uh, because we have DNA testing. We can find out about his diet, what he died of, was he be poisoned? Blah blah blah. Um, so I mean, I, I think we, we, we live with impossibly expanding archives, but it's often the kind of you know forensic you know, motive that that expands archives.
1: Right. And isn't that the point of Andreas Bernard? Yeah, There's Andreas a
2: Bernard, really nice book on on how social media comes out of psychiatry and criminology. Profiles. We all have profiles mm now. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Coming out in English soon. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Have we run past our time? Or do we have time for one more? Gary.
3: I don't see why that's not an ontology that other objects don't share with the book though. Exactly right.
6: Yeah. 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 right. Um.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amen. Right. I mean, I I really think amen. I mean we recognize this about ourselves, mm-hmm. that we depend upon oxygen on certain kinds of lack of you know Atmospheric carbon, and that we're in big trouble, and so I mean that kind of thinking should extend from humans to the humanities. But I also think to name something a
3: network, or in my terms, there would always be an assemblage, and there are also people now who are working on the assemblage brain, right? Um, uh, you know, isn't isn't to flatten everything into all being one thing, right? I mean, it, it is to make a certain generalizing ontological claim. But it's not, it's certainly not a generalizing phenomenological
1: claim. Yep, I agree with that.
2: <laughs> we're still going to die. Okay. Yeah, we're, we're still going Yeah, die. but ends, yeah. But, but as multiplicities, not as it yeah. In, yeah.
0: Well, that chorus of amen seems like a good place <laughs> to sing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>